In life, every person has to answer at least four questions. The question of origin, where do we come from? The question of meaning, what is our purpose? The question of morality, how do we determine what is right and wrong? And the question of destiny, what's the future and how do we get there? And ultimately, I think there are two basic answers to that final question of destiny. Answer one, there's a blissful future secured by a gracious God who's involved in our daily life. So we have hope no matter what. The second answer, you're on your own. If there is a God, you have to prove yourself to him and you're not sure about the future. If there's not a God, there is no future at all. We might call the first answer the Psalm 23 answer. We might call the second answer the anti-Psalm 23. How might anti-Psalm 23 read? Maybe like this. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I am always restless. I am easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I stumble down dark paths. Life's confusing. When things, why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I suffer endlessly and fear bigger loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone. Are my friends really friends? Often people use me. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much about me sometimes, it's sickening. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all of my days. Will I be alone forever, unfulfilled, free falling into void? My life is a living death, and then I die. Well, with that backdrop, let's listen to the real Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God, beloved. Do you see the difference between Psalm 23 and anti-Psalm 23? When your soul awakens to who God really is, everything changes. 
The real Psalm 23 vividly captures what life is like when Jesus is the shepherd of your soul. Uh, The main point of this passage is found in the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's the main point. Verses 2 through 6 unpack that verse. So we could break down the psalm like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 1. The Lord's provision satisfies our every need. That's verses 2 and 3. The Lord's presence comforts all our suffering. Verses 4 and 5. The Lord's promise secures our every hope. That's verse 6. That'll be our outline as we walk through Psalm 23 this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, So this psalm begins... Like so many others that we've seen, right? The first words are the Lord. And again, as I mentioned last week, that word the Lord is in all caps. And as we remember, that is, that is translation of the name Yahweh. Not a generic name, but God's personal name given to his people. It's from the verb form to be. In other words, God, the, the one true living God is saying, I am. I am who I am. God says, I am the Almighty uncreated, unchanging. I am self-existent, self-sufficient, needing nothing and no one. I was, I am, and I always will be from everlasting to everlasting. This is who I am from first to last. And remember from Psalm 8 that we studied last week. This God's majesty is so great, it fills the earth and extends above the heavens. Our minds cannot understand the infinite majesty of the Lord any more than a thimble can contain the world's oceans. And yet, in Psalm 23, how does he reveal himself? The Lord is my, say it, the Lord is my shepherd. The all-powerful Lord is also a personal shepherd. This idea of shepherd is one of the great biblical themes throughout all of Scripture. In particular, we we read in Ezekiel 34 what God says. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that they have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. God himself will be the shepherd of his people. And how does he do that? How does he shepherd his people? Well, well, like a good shepherd, he's there personally seeking and tending to his flock. In the person of Jesus Christ, the great I am becomes the humble shepherd. And so we read the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. You see, the the God of the Bible is not a far off distant God who just happens to send a telegram to communicate his care for us. No, in the person of Christ, he comes and lays his life down for us. 
And notice what David says. The Lord is not just a shepherd. The Lord is not just the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Everything in the rest of this psalm hinges on that word, my. David was able to say, the Lord is my shepherd, because he first had the faith to say, the shepherd is my Lord. Do you see, David can only say, the the Lord is my shepherd, because he first had the faith to say, the Lord is my savior. He knew he needed to be redeemed, rescued from his own iniquity. And the same is true for us. Only those who trust Christ Jesus alone to be the shepherd of their souls can claim what follows in this passage. This is probably the, the most, one of the most famous, if not the most famous po- poems in all the world. But its promises are reserved for those trusting in Christ. It's not meant to be reduced to a generic feel-good platitude. Every phrase and promise is purchased by Christ. So for my friends, not trusting in Jesus alone. Maybe Jesus is just an add-on to your life, a a good insurance policy. Or maybe you're just not, you're, 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 you're wondering what this whole Christian thing is all about. I am thankful that you are here. Uh, You wouldn't be surprised to know that I think this is the best place you could be on a Sunday morning. And it's my hope that as we walk through this Psalm, you'll be so captivated by the beauty of Christ that you give your life to him, that you too can say, The Lord is my shepherd. And brothers and sisters, that's what we get to say. We get to say by the grace of God, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now to be clear, this does not mean God will give us every desire that he'll automatically fulfill every want and whim that we have. I'm sure you're like me. You probably have some wants. I I would like a new, I would like a Tesla. I'd like a driveway to park that Tesla in, right? Maybe, maybe you, maybe it's, maybe it's a new pair of Nike Air Force Ones or, or a bigger TV or a larger bank account. We all have wants. And on a more serious note, don't we have some of those wants that are godly desires? I want a spouse. I want a child. I want my anxiety to end. I want relief from discouragement and downcast in my soul. How does Psalm 23 speak to those things? Well, the idea of not wanting means we will not lack anything we truly need. Uh, It's insightful that in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 7, that this same word is used. God reminds his people, he delivered them from captivity. He will provide for them to make sure they make it home. So we read Deuteronomy 2, 7. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You lacked, same word, you wanted, you lacked nothing. So here's what Psalm 23 is telling us, beloved. We will lack nothing we truly need to enjoy God and make it home. Make it home to the promised land. Make it home to heaven. Nothing, nothing that will increase your eternal happiness will be withheld from you. And nothing, nothing that will decrease your eternal happiness will be given to you. You will lack nothing. 
in Christ, empowered by his Holy Spirit as part of a covenant church family. We have everything we need to live a godly life, taking refuge in the Lord as we sojourn toward heaven together. We lack nothing. And the rest of the psalm tells us why. Or to say it a different way, the rest of the psalm tells us what God provides, so why we lack nothing. The first thing the Lord provides, the Lord's provision satisfies our every need. Look at verse two again. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So a good shepherd provides and protects. And that's what God does. He's a good shepherd who knows his flock, meets their needs thoroughly and compassionately. And and notice the beautiful imagery here. It's not just grasslands, but green pastures, lush, lavish meadows, rolling hills, vibrant as sapphire, crystal blue skies with white puffy clouds animated throughout the sky. Still waters, cool ponds of peaceful tranquility, lying down. Sheep are slow, weak, and vulnerable, prone to be attacked by predators. But not here, not with this shepherd. They are safe and secure, not a care, not a worry, fully satisfied and resting. That's what these verses convey. Even in the places where we are most vulnerable, the most insecure, We can lay down in the Lord's presence, safe, secure, because of his protection. His provision is abundant. And there are are applications to our physical needs, but I think the focus is much more internal here. The deepest needs of our inmost being. The picture here in verse two is content mind and nourished soul. And so as we take time, to graze in the sweet, satisfying pastures of God's word, sitting by the quietness and refreshment, the stillness of prayer, our spirits will be content and nourished. Did you notice who does all the work in this psalm? The Lord. He makes us lie down. He leads. He restores. He leads. This psalm is not calling you to do anything. It's inviting us to rest in who the Lord is. The world around us provides anything but green pastures and still waters, right? If anything, our city is like a rushing river through a rocky canyon. And if we're not careful, we'll be swept right along with it in the current of Washington, D.C. Now, to be clear, I love this city. I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. There's a lot of good. There is a lot of beauty. There is rich texture and diversity and just so much to enjoy about life here. At the same time, though, I'm simply saying the norms of this city are not fighting for you to be full, content, rested, safe, and secure in the Lord. 
See, we're tempted to measure ourselves by what we accomplish, by the degrees we have, by the acronyms we can put at the bottom of our email, by our grades, by the trophies we accumulate. Yet it's never ultimately satisfying. The office demands just one more hour that cuts into family time, but it's never enough. We try to do that one more thing to impress that friend or that group of friends to gain their approval, but we're left wanting. That relationship promises true happiness, but it soon falls apart. Where our weary souls look to the weekend for rest, but they soon come and go without any lasting relief. We're tempted to crave what we don't have rather than focusing on what God already provides. And so Psalm 23 is asking, will you come and lie down in the green pastures of God's word, feeding on his faithfulness? Will you come rest by the still waters of prayer, living on and leaning on his promises? Will you adjust the rhythm of your life to remember that you are a human being created by God to enjoy him? not just a human doing trying to meet the expectations of others or yourself. See, our good shepherd, Christ himself says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me encourage you to find another brother or sister in the life of this church. Go out to coffee, grab a meal together this week, grab Psalm 23 and just say, what might this look like in our lives? What might it look like to feed on God's word and the pastures and prayer and rest in him? But as we know, it's not only the world around us that pulls us from the green pastures and quiet waters. It's also the soul within us. Verse three, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That word restore is used a couple of ways. First, it's used in the context of repentance of sin. And so in Psalm 51, David is is confessing disgusting personal iniquity. And he says, restore to me, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Uh, It's also used in the context of a soul that is burdened by sin around us or sin to us. So we read Jeremiah crying out in Lamentations. For a comforter is far from me, one to restore my spirit. And so in verse 3, David is talking about refreshing repentance. The Lord's bring is in the midst of our own sin and soul anchoring hope in the midst of the world's brokenness. Of the sin we commit, the sins committed against us have a way of affecting our souls the same way a pinprick affects a beach ball. If left unnoticed, become deflated and lifeless. And so this is one of the tactics of the enemy. He wants to bring to mind all that you've done wrong, trying to convince you that God would never forgive you for that thing. The immorality, the lust, the drunkenness, the angry outburst at the children, the lying to your parents, the spiteful text to that friend, the gossip, the slander. Because of all this, he, the evil one wants you to think, you're too guilty. You're too far gone to receive God's forgiveness. 
For others, the enemy attacks in a different way. He tries to convince you that you're not worthy of God's love because of what's been done to you. You've been violated, taken advantage of, spoken to, or treated unjustly by a stranger. Or even worse, someone who knows you and is close to you, who is supposed to honor and protect you. You've been abandoned by the ones who are supposed to love you most. And because of this, the evil one wants you to believe you're not worthy. You're too dirty and shameful, too broken, too much of a burden for God's affection. And in both instances, Psalm 23 says, no, no, no. He restores your soul. Remember the good shepherd. He laid down his life for his own on the cross. Jesus, the good shepherd, took our sins, paying the price we owe on the cross. Jesus, the good shepherd, hung naked, taking the shame That he might clothe us in white, pure robes of righteousness. And he rose again on the third day and he says, I'm coming back to get my radiant bride. I love her and I want to be with her forever. You are not too broken for Jesus to mend you. And you're not so dirty that he can't cleanse you. This is Christ. This is what he does. Brothers and sisters, don't let... Your own rebellion or the injustices done to you define you. The scriptures tell us God blots out your transgressions and remembers them no more. Isaiah 43. God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103. He washes us white as snow. Isaiah 1. Beloved, you're not just saved from your sin, but to God himself. He restores your soul. You are honored and precious in his sight. Isaiah 43. God does not just tolerate you. He rejoices over you, Isaiah 62. God is not ashamed to call you son or daughter. He takes great delight in you, Zephaniah 3. And so will you behold the restoring, soul-satisfying, heart-anchoring, sin-defeating, sorrow-shattering, shame-demolishing, life-defining grace of the Good Shepherd? Will you behold it and enjoy it? He will lead you in paths of righteousness. He will lead you to all that is good and right and true and beautiful. For the sake of his name and the good of your soul. For those that have never confessed your sins, you've never turned to Christ. You think think you're so messed up that he can have no love for you. Will you consider Psalm 23 this morning? Will you consider that Jesus Christ takes your sin and your shame if you come to him? If you want to know more about that, ask the person who brought you here this morning. You can come find me. I'll get you connected to a member of our church to walk this out with you. But we want you to know that Psalm 23 is not just true. It's beautiful. And it's what you truly long for. So Psalm 23 teaches us the Lord's Provision satisfies our every need, but that does not mean following Jesus will be easy. But thanks be to God, the Lord's presence comforts us in all our suffering. The Lord's presence comforts us in all our suffering. Look there at verse 4. Even though... 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Don't pass over those first two words. Even though it does not say apart from. Even though David's life, even as the beloved chosen king, he was intimately familiar with suffering. These are not just poetic words from a pen. They reflect on real events from his life. In fact, the psalm right before this one, Psalm 22, David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. And then Psalm 22 recounts some of the events in David's life where he suffered. In Psalm 22, David feels forsaken by God. But Psalm 23 answers, no, no, the Lord is present with you. And notice the language here. It's shadow of death and evil. So broad terms. Uh, It certainly can include the fear of imminent death, but it also includes misery, hardships, distress, adversity, harm, sickness, All of us would prefer the green pastures and still waters of verse 2, right? But at some point, we're going to find ourselves in the valley of verse 4. In fact, God does not stop leading from verse 3 to verse 4. It's important to know, beloved. He doesn't stop leading. In his wise providence and strange mercies, it's the Lord who even leads us into the valleys. Uh, That may be where you are right now. Maybe it's a deeply troubled marriage, difficult parenting challenge, an unruly boss or spiteful co-workers, financial pressures, cancer diagnosis, loneliness, relationship strain, chronic illness, death of a friend or family member, unmet godly desires, plaguing doubt. Maybe it's your own thought life that just continues to assault you. Children, maybe you're having a really hard time with your parents, and it's just hard. Maybe you're having a hard time with friends. You feel left out like you don't fit in. We all face journeys. We all walk into these valleys And so maybe that's why you came here this morning. You couldn't take it anymore. Like, I've got to have some answers. I'm in a valley. I got nowhere else to go. I don't have all the answers for you. But I hope you see the Bible takes your suffering seriously. It doesn't offer a generic hallmark platitude and tell you to move on with life. No, it engages suffering. I realize that won't ever answer every question. But I hope you see there's a God who knows and understands what you're going through. The the Christian faith is is realistic and optimistic at the same time. And Christ, our good shepherd, offers hope even in the midst of suffering. And so let's draw out a few things that might help us even now. First note, this psalm calls us to lay down in the green pasture and walk through the valley. 
A lot of times we do it the other way around, don't we? If you're like me, you sprint through the green pasture, ignoring its beauty and blessing, and then you lay down defeated in the valley. But by God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, we can walk through suffering, tears, and trials. Let me be clear, beloved. You will never move on from your suffering. But you can move on with it. Time and band-aids will not remove all grief from your life. But you can learn to walk even if it's with a limp. So in suffering, don't just ask, where's the mountaintop? Consider, what's the next step? What's the next step? And that step might just be to shed tears, crying out to the Lord that you need help. That step might be calling up a friend, saying, I'm not in a good spot. I don't need you to give me a platitude, but I do need you to sit and listen. Slowly, one step after the other, we walk, we limp, we crawl, knowing God is faithful. And notice, what do we walk through? We walk through a valley. We don't walk into a cave. We don't walk around a cul-de-sac. We don't walk down a dead-end street. The emphasis, beloved, is on through which means we have hope. There's a way out. For Christians, suffering is always temporary. Blessings are always eternal. No matter what you face, the best is yet to come, Christian. It's through. And notice David is talking about a shadow. Shadows are real. They can scare us, but they cannot harm us. The shadow of a snake might frighten, but it cannot bite. The shadow of a bee might alarm, but it cannot sting. The shadow of a sword might torment, but it cannot kill. And what destroys shadows? The fullness of light. Jesus is the light of the world who overcame the darkness. You see, Jesus left the green pastures and still waters of heaven, and he didn't just walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He climbed a mountain, the mountain of Calvary, to a cross where he tasted the substance of death. The good shepherd laid his life down for the sheep, but he did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose again, bursting out of the tomb as the light of the world. And in a moment, the substance of death was reduced to nothing but a shadow for those that love him. We will face suffering. We will face shadows of death and evil. And in the moment, suffering and sorrow will not feel like a shadow. It won't. But in light of eternity... It is. Beloved, 600,253 years from now, in the radiant presence of shepherd Jesus, you will look back on this moment of suffering as nothing but a shadow. But here's more good news. You don't have to wait 600,253 years to be comforted. There's comfort now. 
Look what David says. David says, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are, for you are, you're with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Did you notice just what happened? David switched his language. He went from talking about the Lord now to a more personal second person, you. Did you see that, beloved? In the first couple of verses, in, these, in the green pastures, David is talking about the Lord. In the dark valley, he's crying out to the Lord. Do you know what that means? Pain often makes God more personal. And notice where his comfort lies. Not in a change of circumstances. He's not given anything. There is no immediate relief for his pain. For you are with me. His hope is the all-comforting presence of the Lord. That's the anchor of David's soul. He does not say, I will fear no evil because there's nothing to fear. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I will fear no evil because I am so strong. He doesn't say that. He says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Not just your blessings, not just your benefits, but the being of Lord himself is what comforts him. Some of you may have heard of a woman by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, at 17, she dove into a pool. She hit her head on the bottom in an instant, paralyzed, unable to walk, unable to move her hands, bound to a wheelchair. That was 55 years ago. Over five decades, longer than most of you have been alive in a wheelchair. She was a Christian girl at 17. This happened. She got confused. She would even tell you she was angry. God, I'm, I'm, here I am, a young Christian girl that wants to use my life to honor you. And you lead me here, paralyzed in a wheelchair? But she says over the last five decades, her pain and struggles have pressed her up against Jesus in the most intimate of ways. That she sees his exquisite beauty. And she says, it's better to be in a wheelchair in a valley with Jesus rather than standing on the mountaintop without him. See, Jesus is better than anything prosperity can give. And Jesus is better than anything suffering can take. And he suffered. He knows our suffering. See, God knows our pain because he's omniscient, but he feels our pain because in Christ he's incarnate. God is not immune to our suffering. So we have hope. He will never leave us or forsake us. So Christian brothers and sisters, for you are with me. It's one of the nourishing meals of God's comfort. Will you feast in that pasture? Will you feast upon that promise? A practical way to do that, one thing my family has done is we, we memorize Psalm 23. So, so families, let me encourage you to memorize that together with your children. Everybody else, memorize it. Maybe with your roommates, with, with a community group member. Memorize Psalm 23. And call it to mind in hard times. If you've already got that one down, let me suggest Psalm 46. That's another good one. If you're like, I got both those down. Here, do this. On our bookstall downstairs is a little book called um, Fighting Your Fe or Fight Your Fears by Kristen Weatherell. Grab that book or grab a couple copies of it. 
grab a friend and read it together. It's a wonderful book, helping us see how the Lord himself answers all our fears. But there's even more. Look at verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So the imagery here makes a shift. We move from green meadows and dark valleys to a table. And it's not just any table. The language of prepare a table is used in scripture as a, as a king's feast. So we move from a good shepherd to a gracious king. And who is this king? Psalm 24 answers. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Uh, it's interesting to note, this is a bonus, but it's interesting to note, Psalm 22 is what Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 points to the death of Christ. But then Psalm 23 talks about death as nothing but a shadow. He rose again. Then Psalm 24 talks about this king who's going to come again, the Lord of hosts. Do you see how the Psalms fit together and flow and tell the story of the gospel? That was a bonus. Back to Psalm 23. <clears throat> In our text, we see the Lord as a shepherd king. But here's the thing. The language gets even deeper. The king sits David down and what does he do? He anoints him with oil. This signifies joy and gladness, bestowing favor and welcome at its richest. This is language of favor and friendship. So this isn't just a king in authority over David, but a king who has affection for him. This king is a friend. We have a shepherd king friend. Anybody know one of those? David gets a cup. Host begins to pour. The wine overflows. This king is gracious. This friend is generous. Christian, is this your view of God? Or do you view him more as a stingy giver? Do you view your relationship with God primarily with negative terms? I'm not guilty. I don't think God's mad at me. Is that the way you think about it? Those things might be true, but alone they're not sufficient. They're not enough to make you feel honored and cherished. And so I just encourage you to use all the language of Scripture to define your relationship with God. Use the words that he's given, all of them, that you might see that he's a gracious king, a generous friend, who gladly welcomes all those who trust him to his table for an abundant feast. But it gets even better. Did you notice where this meal's taking place? In the presence of my enemies. This is a victory meal, a royal banquet feast in the presence of defeated enemies who can do nothing to disturb or disrupt the joy of the party. In other words, David is not just delivered from his enemies, they are made to serve his joy. The gracious king and generous friend is hosting a meal that, where the spoils of victory are being rubbed in the face of the enemy. 
maybe not a good thing for us to do in our lives, but in the economy of God's eternal kingdom, this is right and just. Because in Christ, we are not just conquerors defeating our enemy. What does Romans 8 say? We are more than conquerors. You ever like, why more? Because we don't just defeat them. No, we're more. They actually serve our joy. This is how good and gracious God is. Here's the point. God's sovereign goodness and mercy is so amazing. He'll take those things that Satan wants to use against us to increase our eternal joy. That's what he does. He comforts us in all our suffering now and forever. Which leads us to the final verse. The Lord's promises secure our every hope. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's confidence only seems to grow throughout this psalm, doesn't it? Surely, 100%, without doubt, nothing's going to separate me from the goodness and mercy of God. That word mercy is the word that's often translated steadfast love. It's, 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 the, it's the Hebrew word for God's special covenant, loyal love for his people. And there's nothing that are, is going to separate David from that. And where does David ultimately look? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord is where God's presence is. It's, it's, it's the center of God's immediate and intimate presence with his people. And that's David's hope. David is hoping in heaven. Nah, it's the same hope for all of us. We all yearn for a world, no disease, no death, no sickness, and no sorrow. All God's people together, fully restored world, enjoying every good and perfect gift, food, drink, creation, sports, art, music, games, technology, relationships, enjoying everything without hint of stain or sin or shame, no impure motives, no awkward, intense relationships, no doubts, no confusion, only pure thoughts, actions, and desires, deep abiding joy while beholding the exquisite beauty of Jesus. That's what David wants. One thing that I'll ask, that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. And gaze upon his beauty. This is the very thing Jesus promises. A few chapters after describing himself as the good shepherd in John 10. In John 14, he tells his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you... I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is what, this is what Jesus promises, what he bought. It's our hope. You wonder why, why do you guys talk about heaven all the time? Because the Bible does. That's why. It's our hope. So beloved church, Let's continue to help each other sojourn toward heaven. Yes, there'll be green pastures, but there's also going to be dark valleys. 
Let's remind each other of God's promise that goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. So let me just encourage you to think of one specific way that you can encourage another member of this church to think about heaven this week. And then don't just think about it. Actually call, text, email, and say, I just want to encourage you to think about heaven in this way, brother. Think about heaven in this way, sister. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. The first word of this psalm is the Lord. The last word of this psalm is forever. That's what this psalm promises. The Lord forever. This psalm tells us about a good shepherd, a gracious king, and a generous friend. Perhaps David was drawing on his own life. He was a shepherd. He became a king. He knew what it was like to have a really good friend. But God made a promise to David. One would come after him who was a greater shepherd, a greater king, and an ultimate friend. And I think that's where David is ultimately looking. Because every verse of Psalm 23 is like a stroke of the brush, painting a beautiful mosaic for those trusting in Jesus Christ. The shepherd, the king, our friend. Beloved green pastures are beneath, still waters are beside. A prepared table is before, the enemy is crushed below. God's goodness and mercy follow close behind. The Father's house is just beyond. Brothers and sisters, what do you lack? Non-Christian friend, what more could you want? The Lord's provision satisfies our every need. The Lord's presence comforts all of our suffering. The Lord's promise secures our every hope. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or maybe we could say, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you sent your willing son to rescue your people. And that together you sent the spirit that we might know your presence intimately in the highs and in the lows. I pray for those this morning that are in the green pastures, that they would not neglect lying down, enjoying your grace to them in these times. That the green pastures would roll up into great praise of your lavish provision. I pray for those this morning that are in the dark valley, that they would, by your grace, they would walk. They would know it's through. And as hard as it is, these things are shadows in Christ. So God, may we be a people that sojourn together, that remind each other of our good shepherd, our gracious king, our generous friend, that we too might say, oh, how we want to live forever in the house of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Amen.